So if you would please grab your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 13. John 13 verse 16 is where we'll be picking up today. John 13 verse 16, we'll get there in just a moment. Last week, we, uh, well, before we even go any further, let me, let me pray for us. Father, we love you, and I am so grateful for the time that we have already had in singing to you, God, lifting our voices, uh, giving you gratitude, singing hallelujah to you, our King. And Father, uh, we want to continue our worship now as we humble ourselves before your word. We have come to hear from you. We have uh, come to learn of you. We want to listen and obey. And so, Father, I pray that you would use your word today to encourage, to instruct, to challenge, to strengthen, to bless, to guide, and to rebuke even if necessary. Whatever, whatever you see fit as our loving Heavenly Father, I pray that you would have your way today by your Holy Spirit and through your Holy Word. Help me, Father, to be able to preach well, to teach well, to exalt Christ and to be able to expound upon your word in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, we do ask that you would minister here, that you would move mightily in our presence, and that uh, Christ would be exalted to the highest place. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. All right, so, as I said last week, we concluded, uh, we had already concluded Jesus' public ministry, chapters 1 through 12. I mentioned that that covered a portion of about a time span of about three years approximately. Now the section of Scripture that we are in, chapters 13 through 17, covers about a few hours. And so John slows way down in these chapters that we are currently working through. And this is a, a portion of the book that is known as the... Anybody know? Starts with a U. Upper Room Discourse. All right, very good. So that's, that's where we are at. Jesus is spending these last hours before he will be betrayed and arrested. He's spending these last few hours, very intimate time with his disciples. So chapters 1 through 12 was his public ministry. Chapters 13 through 17 are often called his private ministry to his disciples. And we began chapter 13 by looking at how the master served. The master served. The disciples were served by their master. Jesus humbled himself and washed the disciples' feet. And we talked about how to belong to Jesus is to have been served by Jesus. You must be served by Jesus to belong to him, to be one of his. You must be washed. You must be cleansed. You must be born again. And secondly, if you belong to Jesus, it then follows that you will serve. You will serve Jesus, and you will serve others. Well, this week, things take a rather dark turn as the text focuses more on Judas and his coming betrayal. Um, I got to thinking about this. This is typically a lot of churches would be doing Thanksgiving messages this week. And I thought, that's just like me. I don't think ahead on these kinds of things. And uh, instead, we're going to be talking about treachery and betrayal a couple years ago, it was Mother's Day, and I did a message on satanic opposition. <laughs> and uh, I did have one of the moms tell me that was actually a lot more appropriate for, you know, mothers 
and the difficulties that they experience on the regular than some, you know, frou-frou Mother's Day message. So I thought, okay, well, God knows what He's doing. And so here we are. Uh, we're dealing with Judas today. And so, um, you know, Judas has gone down in history as the most notorious traitor. The name is virtually extinct. That was a very common name, very popular name, Judas. There were two disciples named Judas, and in fact, Jesus' half-brother is named Judas. Uh, Jude, the book of Jude, that would be Jesus' half-brother. No wonder why he changed his name from Judas to Jude. Um, But yeah, I mean, that was just a cursed name. And so from that point forward, nobody would want to name their kid that. And so uh, Judas is uh, just notorious to that end. But I would also say he's gone down in history as just one of the greatest tragedies. Someone who was so close to Jesus for those few years, who saw the kinds of things that he saw, experienced the kinds of things that he experienced, yet in the end he would cash all that in. And for what? And so it's the greatest tragedy. And I would say Judas is a vivid picture of what is in the human heart apart from God's divine mercy and grace. If we reject God's goodness and kindness, you know, there's nothing that would stop us from doing the same. That, that is what is bound up in the hearts of sinful men and women, such as ourselves, such as we were before Christ came in and set us free. And so there are a number of takeaways in this text. I think what I most want to point out, though, is that all things that happen, happen to advance God's plan, uh, particularly His plan of redemption. Nothing hinders it. Though we see forces at work that are essentially trying to take Jesus out, stop Jesus, what they're actually doing is is accelerating God's plan. Despite Judas's satanic attempt to take Jesus out, he actually fulfills God's plan. And I would say this is really, truly the fulfillment of the story of Joseph. It's been said that Joseph is a type of Jesus in the Old Testament in uh, the latter part of Genesis. And you remember his brothers, they hated him, they despised him, they wanted to kill him. One of the brothers talked them out of doing it, so instead they threw him down in a pit, and then they sold him to some slave traders. And then they took his robe, dipped it in animal blood, and came back and showed it to the father, uh, causing um, Jacob to assume that his son had been killed. But he had actually been sold into slavery. And interestingly enough, Jesus is betrayed for the amount that a slave would cost, 30 pieces of silver. Well, years later, we know that Joseph rose to the second most powerful position in the world under Pharaoh, and he's reunited with his brothers, and they're thinking, okay, he's going to get us now. He's going to come back and get us. And what was his response? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. They had evil in their hearts. They conspired against their brother. They sought to take him out. But instead, that advanced God's purposes and God's plans, even his redemptive plan. And so that's what we see here in this story. Judas meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Nothing was going to stop God's plan. Jesus is not caught off guard here. He recognizes that all things are right on time. All things are according to plan. And I think just on a personal note, we can have comfort in that. No matter what happens in your life, Jesus isn't caught off guard. You might be. I might be. We might be shocked by things that happen, but Jesus is not. 
And he is certainly advancing God's plan in your life. And what the enemy means for evil, he means for good. He takes that and turns it and uses it for God's good. And all is according to God's plan. Amen? All right, so with that, let's go ahead and get into our text. So we're going to look at verses uh, 16 through 18. Judas's betrayal did not come as a shock to Jesus. That's point number one. Judas's betrayal did not come as a shock to Jesus. Verse 16. It says, Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. So obviously we covered a couple of these verses last week, but in order to kind of gather, to kind of have the flow here, I dropped back a couple of verses. Now, having served the disciples the way that Jesus did, he just girded himself with a servant's towel and went around the table and washed all the disciples' feet. He now sits back down in their midst and he begins to communicate the significance of what just took place. We know that there was a spiritual aspect of this. Jesus told Peter that he would have a need to be washed regularly. We are clean in Christ, but we get muddied, our feet get muddied, as it were, in this world, and there's a need for regular cleansing. Jesus kind of talked about that a little bit. But there was a very practical element to this, and that was Jesus was the servant of all. And if he was the servant, then they too were to do the same as him. He said that if their master in humility had served them as he had, then they were duty-bound to do the same. For it was not beneath Jesus to humble himself and serve them as he did. So therefore, it certainly was not beneath them to do as their Lord had done. Amen? You with me on that? That's, that's, the, that's the truth, point blank. There is nothing that is beneath us, folks. If Jesus was willing to condescend to the degree that he did, leaving his heavenly glory and coming down to the earth and living a life of complete and total obedience to the Father and serving us all the way to the point of death on the cross, if he was willing to stoop like that, is there anything that is beneath us? No, there is not. Nothing. Is there anyone that doesn't deserve our love and our service? No. No. Jesus even washed Judas's feet. And so Jesus says, therefore, you must do the same. And then he says, blessed are you if you do that. Blessed, if you, blessed are you if you know these things and do these things. You know, so there is joy and there is blessing in following the example of Jesus. But then, almost on a dime, Jesus turns and he makes this very astonishing and almost cryptic statement. He says, this is not true of everyone sitting at the table. This is not true of everyone sitting here. He said, I do not speak of all of you. So he says, a servant is not greater than his master. Blessed are you if you follow my example. But I'm not talking about everybody sitting here at this table right now. I imagine their ears really perked up. Jesus is essentially saying, one of you is not my servant, and I am not your master. You will not be blessed in following my example. Now, Jesus already knows 
Jesus already knows at this point that Judas has conspired against him. That has already happened. We're told in Luke chapter 22, verse 1, it says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near. So this is before the Passover. It says that the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill Jesus, for they feared the people, so they wanted to do it secretly, right? So they were conspiring against him. Verse 3, it says, Then Satan entered Judas, who was numbered among the twelve, and so he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and the captains, how he might betray them, betray Jesus to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of the multitude. So this has already taken place. Judas has already gone to the chief priest and made a deal for the 30 pieces of silver. We're told that Satan entered into Judas. I had never even caught that before. And so already Satan had entered into Judas once. He literally was possessed by Satan to go and make this deal. Now, what was interesting to me about this is there was something else that happened right before, right before Judas went out and made this deal with the, the uh, chief priest. Does anybody know where he was at immediately before this? That's right. Very good. When Mary... Uh, anointed Jesus' feet. Remember that? At Simon the leper's house. And he was having dinner with Simon who had been a leper and Lazarus who had just been raised from the dead after having been dead for four days. Mary comes in with that very costly alabaster flask of oil and anoints his feet. And Judas, he had an issue with that. And so that was John chapter 12 verse 4. It says, one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. And so Jesus rebuked Judas for that. He said, leave, leave her alone. What she is doing for me is a beautiful thing, and it will be told of for, for as long as the gospel is preached, wherever the gospel goes. And evidently, that set Judas off. That was the catalyst right there. Judas left from there, and he went, and he conferred with the chief priest. He had had enough. Now, this tells us a lot about Judas right here. Judas was a hypocrite through and through. He was trying to pretend like he was this benevolent guy, he said, look, that, that is totally squandering something that could have been sold and given to people who are truly needy. Now, Jesus was being worshipped. This was truly significant. He didn't care anything about that. He said instead that we ought to have given it to the poor. Why would you do that, Mary? Why did you just do that? But in fact, it wasn't that he wanted to give it to the poor. He actually would pilfer the money and spend it on himself. Now, this was, it's interesting to me. You know, I don't know. I guess they didn't have money, pockets in, ro in their robes. I don't know what, that, what the deal was that, but they, compiled, they had all their money in one place in, the, in a box or a bag or whatever it was, and Judas was the one that held on to the money. He was the treasurer of the group, if you will, and he was stealing from the money. Uh, that, so he was a thief, and he was greedy. He wanted more of that money, and when he wasn't going to get that, he decided to cast Jesus in. Isn't that amazing? See, Judas did not love Jesus. Jesus was a means to an end for Judas. 
presumably he wanted power. Now, I've talked about this a thousand times over. We know what the disciples thought Jesus came to do. They weren't looking for someone who was going to bring salvation uh, from sin and hell. They were looking for someone who was going to be a political leader who was going to overthrow Rome and bring Israel back to their power and their glory days. And these guys were essentially opportunists. This is the guy. He's going to take us back to glory, and we are his right-hand men, and we're going to be right there with him as he climbs through the ranks, and we're going to be right there with him when he is in power and glory. And that's essentially what they thought. I think that the disciples in time came to grow in their love of Jesus as they interacted with him, and it, it went beyond that, but not for Judas, not for Judas. It never went beyond that. And I think in a lot of ways, guys, this can be true of us, not that it's a bad thing, but initially we come to Jesus perhaps because we, we recognize we need salvation. We want to be forgiven of our sins. We don't want to have to answer for our sins one day before a holy God. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not the greatest reason. In time, you grow to know this Savior, this Jesus. You grow in your love and your affection and your devotion to Him. That's all part of the maturing process, right? But Judas never got there. Judas never got there. Judas didn't really love Jesus. Judas loved Judas. And Judas was out to get for himself whatever he could get for himself. Now, this isn't new in the Gospel of John. This was common amongst many of the people. Remember back in John chapter 6, after Jesus fed the multitudes with the, the five loaves and the two fish, remember that? And then Jesus went away, and the people began to chase after him, and they found him in the next town, and Jesus said this to them. He said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and you were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Jesus said, you're coming to me for the wrong reasons. You ate the bread, you, you enjoyed the bread, you were full, and you want more of that. You're laboring for something which is temporal, it's temporary, it's all passing away. I came to give you something that's eternal. Judas was laboring for something that was temporary. You know, kingdoms rise and they fall. Political things get us so upset, and we get so excited or discouraged or, or angry. We get so invested in the kingdoms of this world, but they're all passing away. There's only one kingdom that remains, and it's the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Well, Judas wasn't about that kingdom, okay? He was looking for a very different kingdom. He was laboring for something that was going to pass away, something that was not eternal, something that was very temporal, and so we've got to watch that in our own lives. What is it exactly that we're trying to get from Jesus? What is it that we expect from Jesus? Or are we pursuing Jesus because we love Him? Because He's worthy, because He's glorious. He's done so much, more, so much for us already. He saved us. We didn't deserve it. We weren't worthy of it. If He never did anything else beyond that, he is worthy of our praise, of our adoration. Amen? And yet somehow I think we continue to put all kinds of expectations upon God, upon Jesus. And then when things don't go the way that we want them to go, what happens? We get mad at God. We question God. We get cold towards God. And what does that tell us? We're, we want God exists to do for us. 
And that's essentially the way Judah saw it. And so when Jesus was not going to deliver to Judas what Judas expected him to deliver, Jesus was no longer useful to Judas. He was no longer useful. And so Judas cashed him in. Judas sold him out. And so this is why Jesus could say, I don't speak concerning all of you. You're not all my servants here. I'm not everyone here. I'm not your Lord. There is one who stood out above the others. And he says, I know who you are because I chose you. Did you see that? I know who you are. I chose you. Now, Jesus is not admitting that he made a mistake. He isn't saying, uh, I chose you. My bad. I thought I heard from God on this one, but uh, maybe I didn't. That's not what he's saying at all. In fact, he says, I chose you so that the Scriptures would be fulfilled. This was in accordance with the Word of God. That's exactly what Jesus said. I know whom I have chosen, that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. So this idea of the one who has eaten bread, as I've talked about this before, there was just a special intimacy that existed in that culture with dinner table fellowship. You didn't just break bread with anybody. You broke bread with people that you were very close with, that were very special to you. There was an intimacy there. That's why Jews wouldn't eat with Gentiles, because they felt like it was essentially there's a oneness there. And so there's this quote from the Old Testament, the one that broke bread with me, the one who ate bread with me has lifted his heel against me. So the idea, I've heard a couple different things. Uh, Raising the heel against somebody is like kicking them when they're down. Right, that that's probably sounds normal to us. I've heard of it used as like a being kicked by a horse. Right, um, I've thought of it as someone's hanging on a ledge, and they're desperate in need of help, and you come up and you could help them, but instead you kick them off. Right, that I think that's kind of the the idea here. So the my closest companion, the one that we shared intimacy with, we broke bread together, he's turned against me, he's betrayed me, he's lifted his heel against me. And that is specifically from Psalm 41.9. Psalm 41.9 says, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now that is a Psalm of David. And David, we think, is talking about a guy named Ahithophel. Does that ring a bell to you? Any Bible students in here? We know who Ahithophel is. You should know about David. You should know the, the life of David. It's, it's, there's so much gold there, First and Second Samuel. Ahithophel was his, his closest counselor. That was his go-to man. And uh, he really loved Ahithophel and valued Ahithophel's wisdom. But David's son... Absalom rose up against him and tried to overthrow him and take the throne from David, and Ahithophel went with Absalom. Ahithophel partnered with Absalom in this overthrow. Just a little side note here. Uh, kind of interesting. If we don't know this for sure, but it's thought that... Does anybody know who Ahithophel's granddaughter might be? I'll be really impressed if anybody knows this. Huh? Bathsheba. Bathsheba. And so when Nathan comes into the court to accuse David, 
And he says, David, you're the one. It's altogether probable that Ahithophel's right there. That's his counselor. That's his right-hand guy. And Ahithophel is probably thinking, David, man, what a benevolent guy. My son-in-law dies in battle, and David takes my, do- my granddaughter in, and, uh, and then Nathan comes in and blasts him, and Ahithophel's standing right there, and he finds this out. I imagine at that point he was ready to get David, you know. And so when the opportunity arose, he came against David, and he uh, tried to take him out. But you know what? It didn't work. And you know what ended up happening to Ahithophel? He hung himself. Very similar to Judas. That's what Judas did in the end. Judas hung himself. Very fascinating. Again, Psalm 55, verse 12, it says, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it he who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal, my companion, my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked in the house of God. Another prophecy there, uh, speaking of the betrayal of Jesus. And then even the 30 pieces of silver, that was prophesied in Zechariah chapter 11. It says, Then I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. And so this betrayal of Jesus, this even the very amount of money that would be given to Judas for this treachery, it was all foretold. And Jesus knew this. Jesus knew this. Jesus was a good Bible student. He knew the Word of God, and He knew that all of these things that were transpiring were happening in accordance with God's Word. And I, I love that. And Jesus was... He firmly held to the Word of God. He firmly held to He really believed it. He likened his own resurrection to Jonah. You know, that's an interesting thought. Jesus really believed that Jonah got swallowed by a great fish. Did you know that? Because he said, just as the, Jonah was in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. So if to Jesus, the story of Jonah was just some kind of a spiritual moralistic kind of a teaching, then he would essentially be saying the same thing about his own resurrection. When Jesus went to battle against Satan over and over, he said, it is written, it is written. And what that literally means is it stands written. It was true then, it's true now. It doesn't change. God said it then, he meant it then, he means it now. His words haven't, nor will they ever fall to the ground. And so Jesus was all about the Word of God, the Bible. Of course, for him, it was the the Old Testament and so Jesus wasn't shocked by any, any of this. He knew that all things were going in accordance with God's Word. And I think that's just a great principle for us. We can follow that example. Because you know what? Sometimes in our lives, it does seem like things, it's going down. All hope is lost. What are we going to do? And you know what the Word of God says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12? Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as some strange thing has happened to you, right? So we, in the same way, are comforted by the Word of God, the same way that Jesus was. We understand that the Word of God applies to our life. We understand that the Word of God instructs us, and Jesus was a great example of that. In verse 19, he says this, Now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am He. 
Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Now, Jesus is preparing his disciples here. This almost sounds like it's detached from what is going on in the, in the text here, right? But he's preparing them because one within their own ranks is about to defect. They may think that one of our guys has turned against Jesus and God's plan is being thwarted. But not so. It's actually going to advance God's plan. But it's not going to seem like that to these guys. Judas is going to betray Peter is going to deny. The disciples are all going to scatter and abandon Jesus. And then Jesus himself will be put to death. They are going to think that it's all over. That all is lost. All hope is lost. Everything that we had hoped in, everything that we had trusted in, has all come to naught. But this was all part of God's plan, and Jesus is telling them now. So that afterwards, they will see these things, and they will know Jesus told them. And they're going to know that Jesus said, I am He. Now, what's interesting is in the Greek, he is not there in the Greek text. Jesus literally says, after this, you will know that I am. And so Jesus is telling them all of these things. He's saying this is in accordance with the Scripture. It's going to go down exactly the way I say it will. So you're going to look back at this after it happened and recognize it happened just as I told you, and you're going to know that I'm he. And you're going to be confident you're going to be confident that I am the sent one of God. And just as God sent me, I'm sending you. And anyone who receives you receives me. And if they receive me, they receive the one who sent me. And so that was their confidence. That's our confidence. You know, we might be in a dark place. We may think that it's too late for us, that perhaps we've messed up. You know, after I would say don't raise your hands, but... Maybe you've been in a place, maybe you are in a place where you think all hope is lost, that you've messed up, that you've gone too far, that it's too late for you. I've been there, I have, as a, as a believer, you know. But uh, that wasn't the case. It seemed like that at first, because we can't see what God sees. We don't know what God knows. And so Jesus could see beyond what they could see, and he was able to offer them hope in a very dark, dreadful time, what was about to befall them. And that's a beautiful thing. And Jesus was able to remind them of that. Now, the next point, as we move further in the text, Jesus was not shocked by, by this, right? He expected this. But his announcement to the disciples is very shocking. They're shocked. The announcement of a betrayal shocks the disciples. That's point number two. So verse 21 when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. And Simon Peter therefore motioned to ask who it is of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Now, at this point, as Jesus is speaking about these things, he becomes physically and visibly shook. It becomes very obvious that something is troubling, agitating Jesus deeply. You don't even necessarily hear it in the language, but Jesus is really going through very deep, intense turmoil here in the light of what he's talking about and what is about to happen. 
Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus has alluded to the fact that Judas was going to do this. In John chapter 6, Jesus says in chapter, verse 70, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it is he who would betray him. And then even just last week in John chapter 13, verse 10, Jesus said, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, but, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. But now Jesus is very explicit about what is about to happen. And it, he's deeply vexed by this. And the disciples are totally perplexed. They're shocked. And so Matthew tells us a little bit about this, and it goes into a little more detail. So I'd like to read that to us. I want to just consider the, the response of the disciples here. So in Matthew chapter 26, verse 20, it says that when evening had come, Jesus sat down with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? Now, I love that response. I think that's the proper response, the appropriate response that a person should have. When Jesus says that this is about to happen, they're deeply vexed, sorrowful, and then each one asks, is it me? Really, each one of them should have asked that because any one of them could have been capable of it. If we're honest with ourselves, any one of us are capable of so much worse. The Bible tells us that, that apart from Christ, apart from God's grace, man, what do we got? You know, if it, if it wasn't for God's Holy Spirit and His grace, I know where I would be right now and it wouldn't be here, you know? And so the disciples seemingly say, Lord, am I the one? Am I the one? And he says to them, continuing on in Matthew, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And he said to him, You have said it. Now, there's an interesting thing that happens in these verses. Jesus says that it's the one who dips with me in the bowl. We'll talk about that in a moment. But then he says, Woe to the man who does it. It's going to happen exactly as it is written of him, but woe to the man who does it. So it's an interesting parallel or paradox or whatever you want to call it, but this was God's sovereignty in action. Judas was going to do this. It was foretold that he was going to do this, but Judas is accountable for it. It's Judas's react, it's his, his natural response. Judas rejects Jesus and betrays him, and Jesus kind of puts these two things together. It was written that it would go down this way, but woe to the one who does it. Now, what must Judas be thinking right now? He knows he's betrayed Jesus. He knows he has the money. He knows what's getting ready to happen. And Jesus just, out of nowhere, one of you is going to betray me. I mean, talk about the paranoia that he must be feeling right now, right? And then Jesus issues this warning. It'd be better for you if you had never been born. I mean, that's heavy. 
That's very heavy. And then Judas has to play the part. Everybody else is saying, Lord, is it I? And so you know how it is. Judas has to kind of get in there and pretend, is it me? And then it seems like Jesus flat out says, it's you. You have said it. Basically, as I understand it, it's kind of like saying you're condemned out of your own mouth. You're condemned by your own words. Now, evidently, the rest of the group didn't hear this. They didn't hear this. This was just a private exchange between Jesus and Judas because John tells us that Peter signals to the apostle John and says, hey, who is he talking about, right? So clearly this exchange, this always tripped me out because I used to always think that Jesus exposed Judas to the disciples and that they all knew it. And, you know, there's a lot of things in the Bible that we can grapple with and be like, I just don't understand this. It doesn't make sense. Out of all the things that we could get tripped up by, this was one of them for me. Because I just thought, man, I would have thought that the whole group would have just dogpiled him and beat him down like right there, you know, at the table or something. And, and, uh, but they didn't. And I was always like, man, that is so weird to me. How is it that they didn't like just take him out right there on the spot? And I just think that the answer is they just didn't know. One, they were just so perplexed, so startled by all of this that it didn't make any sense to them. But two, I just don't think they heard the exchange. Um, I know I showed you guys this last week, but I'm going to throw it back up one more time. I got ahead of myself last week. And so this is, uh, I'm sure you all know by now, what is this table called? You better know. Say it out loud if you know it. Triclinium. Triclinium. Y'all should know this. Come on, people. Triclinium. And this is what it would have looked like. They didn't have tables and chairs the way that we do. And uh, the, the painting of the Last Supper, that would, that would not be what, what this scene would have looked like. It would have looked more like this, right? Sitting low to the floor. You see how they have their feet behind them. They're kind of propped up on their elbows. Um, and so this would be John right here we think. And then Jesus, this is the spot where the host would be sitting. And this would be the seat of honor, the guest of honor, which would be Judas. All right. So John would be leaning up against Jesus and Jesus would be essentially leaning towards Judas. So you can see how they would be able to have these little quiet conversations amongst themselves without necessarily the rest of the group hearing what's being said between them. And so we know, according to the verse that we just read, Peter signals to John, so we think this is Peter over here, and that he just basically signals right across the table to John and says, who is Jesus talking about, right? And so John leans back over towards Jesus and asks him, and Jesus says, this is the one whom I dip the, the bread in the cup. Well, well, that would make sense because it would have to be right here because they're sitting right next to each other and they would take the bread and dip it in this paste that was like bitter herbs and some other stuff that sounds really gross to me. Some of you foodies would probably love it, but, uh, you know, not me. And so anyways, that's what's happening. And, um, you know, John, we're told, is leaning up against Jesus' chest. And you can, that, that's, that's enough. You can take that down. Thank you, guys. That, that kind of tripped me out 
a little bit, you know, we're, you know, in our culture, that's, you just don't do that, you know, uh, we're men and, you know, getting all up in someone's space like that, it's just an un- uncomfortable thing, leaning up against Jesus' chest at the table, I just thought, what well, that, you know, and people will say, you know, that John and Jesus just had a very special close relationship, it's possible that John was the youngest of the disciples and Jesus was like an older brother or father figure even. I don't know. I mean, you could speculate with all that. But I do think there's some cultural stuff going on there because I didn't know this. My wife had told me, she's been over in the Middle East, uh, and she said that, um, you know, men actually hold hands uh, over there just walking around. And I thought, oh, okay. (laughs) I mean, that's weird, but uh, all right. And I was watching this documentary recently about the Taliban after they... Uh, took over in Afghanistan, and sure enough, man, a couple of soldiers, Taliban guys, were walking along with their rifles holding hands. I mean, fingers interlocked, and I was like, what? I was like, okay, she wasn't playing. They really do do that. And so I guess there's just, it's a cultural thing, you know. The best I can liken it to, I'm totally off on a tangent right now, I'm sorry. Um, I used to work with a guy, he was a co-worker of mine, and he was a much older guy, but man, we were just such good friends. We were just, you know, the best of friends, uh, brothers, and, you know, if he was somewhere in the near vicinity and we're, you know, talking or whatever, I'd prop my arm on his shoulder and, you know, we just, it just was what it was, right? And so I just think that's kind of the idea here. There was just this special bond between Jesus and John, and I love that. He refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Now, obviously, Jesus loved all the disciples, but there was a special love that, that John and Jesus shared, and I, I love that because there's such a contrast here between the love of John the Apostle, and he's known as the Apostle of Love. That was his message God is love. Children love one another. It was the Lord's command, love one another. And he so knew the love of Christ and so loved Christ, it changed his life and it permeated everything about him. But then you have Judas. You have the one who's sitting on the other side right next to Jesus. And he's in the, the, the guest of honor seat. And he doesn't love Jesus. He hates Jesus. Jesus was an opportunity for him. And when that didn't pan out, he, he sold Jesus out. What a, that's why it's a tragedy. That's why it's a tragedy, right? And uh, I don't know about you guys, but I want to be like the Apostle John, amen? I mean, as an old man, as an old man, it is said, as the last remaining apostle, that he would be carried into churches, basically on a stretcher. He couldn't, he was not mobile. And disciples would carry this guy and He was the last apostle, the last one who sat at the feet of Jesus and learned from him directly. All those years earlier, I mean, think about this. John was probably 90, 90 to 100 years old at this point. And this time here with Jesus, he could have been anywhere from 20 to 30 years old. And his message when he would be carried into these churches was children love one another. Children love one another because it was the Lord's command. And if this be done, it's enough. That's what he, you know, as history, tradition has it, that was the message of this apostle who so loved Jesus and was so loved by Jesus. And so, um, this brings us to our, our third point. Judas functioned as an agent of the enemy. John was the beloved of Jesus, but Judas was an agent of Satan. 
Verse 26, Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. So giving the piece of bread like that, what I just alluded to, that was a gesture that was reserved for the guest of honor. It's kind of like uh, toast, if, toasting, if you will, you know, raising your glass. And so this was a very special honor when Jesus would dip this bread and give it to Judas. And what was interesting to me as I was thinking about this, Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. He gives a signal, a sign. And Jesus exposes Judas to John with a sign, with a signal, the guest of honor. Uh, I mean, there's probably no connection there, but I just thought that was interesting. I had never considered that before. And Judas receives the bread, and then we're told Satan enters him. Now, that's a, that's a scary thought, and I believe Satan can do that to people who don't have Christ. Because if you have Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit living within you, you can't be possessed by Satan. Uh, what fellowship has darkness with light, right? Uh, Paul talks about that very thing. You can't be inhabited by both the Holy Spirit and an unholy spirit, an unclean spirit, or Satan himself. And so I don't believe that Christians, born-again believers, can be uh, possessed, even though there are some Christians who do believe that. I think that scripturally, that's a, we can make a very solid case that that just cannot be, Right? But Satan wasn't a believer. Satan rejected Christ. Satan was fair, or excuse me, Peter, Peter, uh, Judas. Judas was not a believer. He rejected Christ and he was fair game. He was fair game. And he was at Satan's disposal, ultimately. And you know, for believers, however, we can still, I think, at times, if we really get into the flesh, we can still be used in a way, by Satan, because we can be tempted, we can get bitter, we can, he can twist us up in a pretzel, he can tempt us to the point where we, where we fall or, you know, our testimony is, is uh, hindered, where we are ineffective for God. Um, you know, I mean, I'm sure we've all had situations where we encountered another believer or we were that believer who was just in the flesh and Boom, they just caught you and you get into an argument or they, they, they hurt your feelings or offend you. And no doubt Satan was at work in that, right? The enemy was working. And, and so like, even as believers, though we can't be possessed, we still have to be mindful that Satan is working to oppress. He's working to trip us up. He still tries to use people to trip up and offend other people, and we just got to be mindful of that. We have to be spirit-filled believers. Amen? We have to be walking in the light, walking close to God, doing our best to not be walking in the flesh, and to not give Satan an opportunity. Well, no doubt Jesus knew that Satan was present. That's kind of an interesting thought. And when Jesus is speaking to Judas, it's altogether possible that Jesus is really speaking directly to to Satan, and he says to him, what you do, do quickly. Jesus essentially tells him to hurry. They're on a strict timetable. It's going to happen. It's going to go down this way. And so Jesus says, go. Now, apparently Satan thought he was thwarting the plan of God, 
Um, and, you know, this seems to be a tactic of Satan throughout the centuries, doesn't it? Think about Pharaoh. He tried to have all the male babies of the Egyptians killed, remember? And then Moses, who was this great leader of the Jews, uh, God providentially spared him, and he, he grew up and became the one who brought deliverance to God's people. Haman tried to have the Jews exterminated, and Esther, I could really get into this stuff, but I just can't. Uh, Herod tried to have all the male babies killed, remember, trying to, trying to stop Jesus, the, the Christ child. The Romans certainly tried. The, they made many attempts to stamp out Christianity. Uh, Diocletian was the last emperor right before Constantine who really tried. From 284 to 305 was his reign. Uh, and he really tried on an empire-wide level to stamp out Christianity, and it was brutal. But you know what? All these attempts, they, they came to nothing. They couldn't stop what God was doing. Amen? Satan may try, but Satan fails because God, his plan will advance. In fact, it's accelerated. I was just talking about this uh, Roman persecution. There had been different waves of persecution. Some were local pockets of persecution we read about in the New Testament. But this was a, this was a, a Roman Empire-wide attempt to stamp out Christianity under Diocletian. Now, Eusebius, he's a uh, historian, and he gives us several accounts of these uh, persecutions that were happening. And I just want to read this excerpt to you. He says, I was in these places, and I saw many of the executions for myself. Some of the victims suffered death by beheading, others punishment by fire. So many were killed on a single day that the axe, blunted and worn out by the slaughter, was broken in pieces, while the exhausted executioners had to be periodically relieved. All the time I observed a most wonderful eagerness and truly divine power and enthusiasm in those who had put their trust in Christ, in the Christ of God. No sooner had the first batch been sentenced than others from every side would jump onto the platform in front of the judge and proclaim themselves Christians. They paid no heed to torture in all its terrifying forms, but undaunted spoke boldly of their devotion to God of the universe and with joy, laughter, and cheerfulness received the final sentence of death. They sang and sent up hymns of thanksgiving to God of the universe till their very last breath. So that's extraordinary. That's, that's amazing to me. And that's just the point. Satan can do all that he can to try to thwart God's plan, but he can't stop it. It, it, it actually only serves to accelerate God's plan. Isn't that just boggled the mind? That is our God. He's unstoppable. His plans will come to pass. And I praise God for that. We're on the right side of that. You understand? He's our God. He's our Father. He's for us. We're on the winning team. We, that, that should bring great comfort to us. And uh, so I just love, love to see that. Well, this brings us to our last and final point. I'll make this quick. Um, Judas's hypocrisy and treachery was imperceptible to the disciples. Judas's hypocrisy and treachery was imperceptible to the disciples. Verse 28, But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. 
For some thought, because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, buy those things which we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. And having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. When the disciples hear this, they still did not perceive what was going on. Jesus speaks to Judas, tells him, what you do, do quickly. I mean, come on. If Jesus says, someone here is going to betray me, and then you look at someone and say, what you're going to do, do quickly, and they leave, are you going to be sitting there scratching your head like, uh, I wonder what that was all about? Maybe because he's got the money box, he has to go. And he, you know, that, what that tells me is that this guy was a master hypocrite. He had them all fooled. They were totally duped, deceived. They had no clue that this was true of Judas. That is frightening to me. That is frightening. His closest associates didn't know this. Now, what's even more frightening than that is Jesus knew that he was pilfering from the money box, and Jesus never exposed him. Jesus knew it was happening and was just letting it happen. Isn't that amazing? And, you know, the Bible says God chastens those whom he loves. You know, when someone's able just to sin and sin and sin and sin and they never get exposed, that's actually pretty telling, I think. That's, that's something to be afraid of right there because God chastens his children, those whom he loves. But I think he just lets those who aren't his children continue on in their sin. And so I think it says the word of warning for us. You know, we might have people fooled, but God is not fooled. People might see what we want them to see, what we allow them to see, but God sees everything. In 1 Samuel 16, Samuel was sent by God to find the next king, and uh, he goes to David's house, and he goes to David's father, Jesse, and Jesse calls in his firstborn son, and Samuel sees this guy and thinks he's the one. I mean, look at this guy. He's, he's, got it. he's the man. This is what God says to Samuel. Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord is the discerner of hearts. He sees our heart. He knows what's really going on in there. We might have everybody else fooled, but not him. And so we have to do business with God. I don't want to be like Judas. I don't want to have everybody else fooled. Even scarier, I don't want man to be, you know, potentially left in that state. You know, we, we have to take this very seriously. You know, we, can't, we don't necessarily know what's going on with the people around us, but we know what's going on in our own hearts, right? When nobody else is around, we know what's going on. We know the thoughts we think. And so we have to be very careful. We want to have pure hearts, amen? Clean hands. We want to walk in the light. We want to be close to the Savior. We want to be cleansed. We want to be in fellowship with one another. We don't want to be like Judas. We don't want to be a hypocrite, such that even the people around us have no clue. Well, Judas followed through with his plan, and he betrayed Jesus. He betrayed him with a kiss. And then afterwards... He felt some kind of remorse over what he had done, and he tried to go back and take the money back to the chief priest, but they wouldn't. They wouldn't take the money back, and they wouldn't release Jesus. It was too late. So what did Judas do? He went out and hung himself. He went out and hung himself. Now, that is truly a tragedy. It's a tragedy. 
And so I don't know what that was. I, I, I would say that was certainly not repentance. I don't know what that was. But I know Peter denied Christ. And what did he do? He repented. He repented. He turned to Jesus. Judas sold out Christ, and what did he do? He took his own life. He couldn't handle the intense regret of what had happened to him. And so I think we just need to learn from the lesson of Judas. We don't have to carry intense regret. No matter what we've done, we can come to Jesus and we can be forgiven. Amen? Amen. We don't have to take the kinds of measures that Judas took there. It's not too late. It's not too late. Right now, you can call upon the name of the Lord and have your sins forgiven. And you can be cleansed. And you can walk in the light. And you can have the love that John had. You can be like John the Apostle and not like Judas. You can be one that's so incredibly impacted by the love of Christ that it changes you forever. Or you can be a Judas. You can be a Judas. God forbid that there be any Judases in this room today. You don't have to be. You can call upon Jesus' name right where you sit. You can ask Him for forgiveness. You can bow your knee to His Lordship right now. Because that's the good news of the gospel. We were all Judases. We were all Judases. But God in His infinite love and mercy sent His Son Jesus to take the punishment that we rightly deserve for our treachery against a holy God. So that if we confess that we are sinners and we trust that Jesus really did die for our sins, and we give our lives to Him by faith, then we'll be forgiven and cleansed, born again, set free, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? I hope that's true for everyone in this room. Let me pray. Father, we love You. This is a very heavy and weighty story, to be sure. But I think it just drives home the the sobering reality of hypocrisy, of, of sin, um, where sin will take us, the ultimate end of sin. And I think it makes the sweetness of grace and salvation so much brighter, so much sweeter, so much uh, more glorious. Thank you, Father, that many of us in here have received your mercy. We've received your forgiveness. You have transformed us, made us into children of the light. And I pray that if there's anyone in here today who hasn't, and they're feeling the weight of this message, and they're feeling you pressing in on them, and their hearts are being pricked, I pray that they would simply call upon the name of Jesus right where they sit, that they would simply say, I've had enough of me, I've had enough of this life, I want you, Jesus. Please forgive me, please be my Lord, I will follow you. Father, would you please grant that in your mercy and your grace, grant repentance. You're a God who is mighty to save, Father. We look to you, we celebrate you, Father, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.